the biggest struggle is to collect feedback and build that customer intuition on, on what the customer needs. Number one, source of truth and how you collect feedback. B2C, survey, quantitative, qualitative research. In B2B, you actually interview your current customers. And then what you need is really strong CRMs where you can collect feedback on the sales funnel. I really understand people that are not closing a deal with you. Why are they rejecting you? Who are they using? Why are they choosing them over you? And what is lacking? Oh, sales. What are your current customers complaining about? Welcome to Purpose Driven Fintech. I'm your host, Monica Millares. I interview fintech founders, product leaders, and experts to uncover their stories, challenges, and lessons learned in building products with impact. To win the battle with financial stress and have social impact, we need to build products that solve real customer needs in a differentiated manner. In today's episode, I speak with Edu Moore, Product Director at Grada and Latam B2B Fintech. Edu has an impressive career and worked in three fintech unicorns. We go through challenges of collecting feedback, product prioritization, the differences between B2C and B2B product management, and how to keep PMs motivated. Hi, Edu. It's a pleasure having you in the show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, especially because you've worked in three Latam unicorns. So, welcome. Thank you, Monica. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. This is actually the first podcast I participated in. So, oh, awesome. It's chat. I always say that it's just okay. a chat, which makes it like even better. So, given that it's just a chat, I think before we go into the geeky product TM fintech things, I like having like a fast get to know each other type of conversation so that people know you a little bit. Can you tell us what is your superpower? Superpower. I can make a plant become my friend, I would say. Meaning yeah. you're super Meaning, friendly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm too friendly, I would say. Oh, that is cool. But probably that's a very good quality for leadership and work, work working in product. Like you become everybody's friend. Yeah. No, not everybody. But, many but in general. People. Yeah. Awesome. And then what is your secret to success? I think... Just finding something you enjoy doing and working really, really hard, no? And self-awareness, no? Like uh, acknowledging where you're not very good at and working harder on that and hiring better people than you on that, I would say. But yeah, yeah working really hard would be my number one secret to success. I'm yeah, not a natural. Hard cuts. I'm not a natural. You're I'm not a natural. No, I, I failed maths physics when I was young. I had the worst handwriting when I was a kid. I was the slowest kid in high school in, in physical ed courses, but it was just a lot of effort. Oh, wow. I would, looking at your CV, I would never, ever, ever thought that you struggled when you were a kid. A ton, a ton, a ton. Like my mother didn't know what to do with me. So she just taught me math at home. My sisters would help me with history lessons. And then I just studied a ton. Yeah. Effort, effort, <laughs> effort. Cool. Yeah. And then this is one of my favorite questions. What is your favorite fintech that is not yours? I would say right now, Nubank would be hard to beat, given that I work there. Like customer obsession, the work they're doing, and their long-term vision and how they execute those building blocks towards the, that long-term vision, I think it's just unique, right? World-class. Uh, 
they are yeah. crushing it. Yeah, but when I joined in 2019, they were not crushing. They were doing well, but they just kept pushing, no? So yeah, I would say Nubank would be my favorite fintech right now. Bullish. Awesome. And wow. And then this makes like the conversation even more juicy because we'll go into all that detail. But before we go into the detail, can you tell us about purpose? What has been the role of purpose in your life and in business? That's a good one. So I think it goes back to college and figuring out what to do. And to be honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was a grown up, but what did I want to, to work on? I, I was, I was growing a house where my two parents were entrepreneurs, right? They built their own wealth from way below. And it, I didn't have like a corporate education, like family example, right? It, it was just mm -hmm. a couple of entrepreneurs that worked together and, and just worked their way through, right? So I went, I always make options that allowed me to explore what did I actually want to do, right? Um, so I went into industrial engineering, um, which opened a wide range of options out of college. Out of college, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, but I knew that investment banking and analytics and finance would open a lot of doors and it would yeah. be a good school. So I did investment banking. After going to investment banking, I realized I couldn't find purpose, right? In, in investment banking, to be honest, I, I didn't see what is the impact I'm giving. I mean, I'm helping companies make hundreds of millions of dollars of in, in deals and M&A, but I'm not actually making a huge impact or, or giving back. So I decided to do an MBA, get out of Argentina, explore working abroad. During my MBA, I took some entrepreneurship lessons at MIT's Martin Trust Center. There's like this famous entrepreneurship course. And I met a couple of colleagues and we tried to build a startup to heal mental anxiety and depression. Well, sure. And I found we had some, some cases. So, so that's when I started like thinking about entrepreneurship and giving back and, and having more impact into the world, right? We won some fellowships and grants and got close to building a prototype, but the three of us had a ton of debt and everybody was also looking for a side job and a way to head. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually it failed. So lesson number one, I would say, if you're going to build something, commit to it. And burn the bridges, right? Eventually left the MBA, went to consulting, basically wanted to learn more, have more opportunities. And I knew I wanted to go into, into tech, but from an Argentinian investment banking background, working in tech into the US is not a straightforward transition, right? It is not. No. And consulting in, in one of the big threes would open those doors for me, would also hone my project management skills and would let me enter into industry. And I was lucky enough to get into the private equity practice at Bain. And within the private equity practice, I was working mostly for technology companies around North America. Right? So that's when I figured out, okay, tech would be a great place to work at. <laughs> and then after a year working in consulting, my H1B visa was rejected and I had six-figure U.S. dollar debt with a passport that would only allow me to work in maybe Dubai, Argentina, and Brazil, and, and the Mercosur countries, right? 
So I started looking around the world uh, on, on those on those countries, and eventually, I just applied to tech firms in in the best cities in the world that I could deliver value and high impact, and at the same time, I can have a sustainable financial life, right? And, and cover the debt I had acquired yeah. during the MBA, and that's how I ended into Nubank in, in Brazil, right? And and from that point onwards, I think that's when work started to get easier, right? So in yes. M&A, investment banking, consulting, and I had an internship at Converse, you know, in Boston covering e-commerce, but work was hard. And I think it was really hard, not because the tasks were hard, because I didn't or I couldn't find a lot of purpose in the work I was doing. And then when starting working at FinTech, like making products that would lower the credit card interest rates for customers. So that made sense in my mind, right? Okay, so now I'm doing something that, that is making sense. Now I'm, now I'm doing something that makes me want to wake up and, and work harder. Yes, I can totally relate to that, to your journey, both from Argentina, well, I'm from Mexico, right? So it's the, I think both of us were, even though we were young, we were very strategic on the decisions that we made. And probably I stu- I also studied industrial engineering. And the oh, reason I studied engineering was because it could open me doors to something else, right? So it, it's so interesting because, you know, like we've never met <laughs> so yeah. different pathways, but similar kind of thinking of, yeah, what is it that's going to open me doors to more opportunities, whatever that opportunity may be. Yeah. Super interesting. And then also like, I felt the same way. I think many people feel the same way. It's like banking, investment banking, consulting, law. People have lost that passion or being connected with work. And at least for me, similar to you, as soon as I started working in a fintech, it was like, yes, we're building a good bank. We are helping customers. There was a mindset shift. And since then, you work insane hours as well, but there's a lot of I don't know, a nice feeling. I don't even know exactly what's the feeling, but it's fulfillment, it's meaning, it's purpose, it's it's a collaboration. You feel part of something that it's even bigger than your own fintech. It's like, oh yeah, we're in this together. It's not anymore about trying to impress, no. trying to feel that you're worth it, that trying to get over the uh, imposter syndrome. Like it's actually giving value, right? And <laughs> and many people confuse like, yeah, you work in tech, you must work like five hours per day, right? And have Starbucks <laughs> coffee. And I don't think I'm working less than consulting hours. Actually, yeah. maybe hitting 60, 70, 75 sometimes, a couple hours on Saturday, right? But I enjoy it. I am a little bit workaholic. This is not industry standard, but I haven't met any PMs in fintech, in developing economies at least that don't work really, really hard and are successful, right? Uh, it's a demanding job. It's hard, but it's very rewarding and fulfilling, uh, as you said. I think the word is fulfillment, right? And it's not anymore about the salary or the credentials or, or trying to get that, what was like num- four out of five score or, or a high performer. No. Like you, you really don't care. No validation anymore. It's not validation, right? It's just shipping a product and then you're in amplitude or whatever 
data tracking tool you, you, you use and like, look, how is conversion going? Are people using the product? Have you launched the channel at least? Like, are we getting good feedback? So I think that that's a little of the shift. What I would, what I want to say is that if you can find purpose in, in those schools, like investment banking or consulting, it is amazing and the impact is huge, right? And, and I would never, like if I, if I had to go again through investment banking or consulting, I would do it all over again, right? They, they gave me the skills that helped me get into tech and, and being a good PM. Yeah. yeah. I would say, yeah. Talking about being a good PM. You've done a very, very interesting type of work that not many PMs have done. That is growth in fintechs. For example, I've done a ton of zero to one in fintechs, both in the UK and in Asia, right? It's like a ton. But you've entered the fintech, like your three fintechs, when they were probably where, where I am now, that it's like the fintech is established. And then, boom, they are about to go into the growth curve. How does PMing product management changes once you go from, let's say, a startup to a scale-up and the scale-ups actually starts to grow, grow properly, like you've experienced in your bank and Bitso and now Clara? I would say, I've never had the joy of going through this growth scale when I came into Brazil and then when I Joined the Mexican office. The Mexican office was like two months old, right? So I had to experience both the Novan going from 3 million customers to 10 million in six months and then to 20 million 12 months later. And also Mexico's office going from 4,000 customers to 20,000 customers six months later to 125 thousand customers after the first year right what i would say would change is and then j just to give some background to to the audience i was hired to join nubank for their mexican office to help launch mexico mm -hmm. given that i didn't have experience in product man management or fintech they mm -hmm. told me go to brazil meet all the key stakeholders Learn work and with come the back. work with the brazilian engineers, product managers, learn about the culture, and then bring the full suite to Mexico to help the preempts in Mexico that are actually building the, the MVP that we're about to launch and help them scale it later, right? So I came into Brazil, Nubank was five to six years old, two products, credit card, debit card, checkings account, that's about it. Wow. 1,500. Employees, 500 engineers. Wow, oh, that's insane. Like when five, you say those numbers, I'm like 1,500 people in the company. <laughs> I were 200. Yeah, but, but the deals are early stage Nubank. I think right now, I think they're closer to what? 8,000? I haven't seen the, the LinkedIn page for a long time. Yeah. And it still felt like day one, like David Bellis would open up coffee chats, 10 minutes, and you can just sit down at the headquarters at the cafe and speak with David Bellis about anything. Right? Mm -hmm. Any employee could just book some time in David's agenda and you could sit down and have a coffee with him and a pau de queijo and speak about anything, introduce yourself, strategy, et cetera, right? Company strategy was wide, open to the whole company. 
They would even share like three-year strategy, five-year strategy in PDF in Slack channel, right? And then you would you would be part of you would feel part of that of that momentum and that strategy and that where the company is going, right? And also there were not so many layers. It was quite a horizontal structure, right? Like I was reporting to a product lead, that product lead reported to the head of product that was like CPO at the time, and he reported to Belis. And that was yeah, about it. That's it. That was the whole structure. Then Mexico was even smaller. Mm. Uh, product team were like 4 PMs. The engineers were like 15, but many of them were shared with Brazil. And all the numbers and metrics and the sample sizes were smaller. And, and it was like way, way more working, getting it done, shipping the product and, and see real impact real fast. I felt like he, when a startup is already old, you feel like you have a lot and a growth and scale have a lot more resources, a lot more people that have gone through a lot of battles and you can find solutions easier. When a startup is a little bit more early stage, you need to work harder to find those solutions. And, and sometimes the solutions you find are not the best ones, but you mm. get it done. Yeah. And you need to wear way more many hats, the smaller the startup is, and be more resourceful, right? Like in Mexico, maybe I would write the research plan. I would be way more involved in customer interviews and participate in all of them. Whereas maybe in Brazil, I would have a UX researcher that can handle a bunch of the interviews and I could jump in one or two, right? And then what, what eventually happens, and this happened at Nubank and Bitcoin, is that the older of the company, I, I think the you need to have more processes. Hmm. And some people find it like bureaucracy or, or it slows down velocity. The thing is, when you have a large customer base, you're impacting a ton of customers. And then when the tech stack is composed out of a lot of microservices or, or even a huge monolith, any minor change you do here can impact something over here. Right? Yep. So you really need to be careful. And you really have to have the right set of processes to make sure that from discovery to execution to launch, everything is really mapped out and follows a, a sequencing and every stakeholder is aware and you minimize the odds of something going wrong. So I would say like the main difference would be more processes, less availability to that three-year strategy plan, coffee chats, you know, with sea levels forget about Go it on. and then sometimes the strategy is not so open to everyone no so unless you're in a leadership position you will depend on your leader to provide that to visibility and to communicate that that high level company strategy vision whereas in a smaller company everybody knows what's going on where the company is going what is the founder thinking and I think those are like, those are like really things that change. I am actually interviewing a lot of PMs from big fintechs that have done amazing. And, and what I feel is that they feel like this, their scope has been reduced. They feel that their purpose is very limited. They feel like they have little decision on the products they built and why they're building it. 
and some of them are not even reporting to product managers. Like we like big fintechs at some point, like sometimes product managers are reporting to analytics leads or data scientists or, or something that is not a product manager. And that's something that can demotivate you as a PM, depending on the company you're working on. In the end, you want to build, you want to be, you're the never the ultimate. Culture. Yeah, you're ultimate, never the ultimate decision maker, but you definitely want to be somebody that has a strong influence on the decision, right? That is super insightful. It's kind of like, you are me in the future. <laughs> I was like, that is so cool. <laughs> I haven't slept with that. And we're on the way. But that is, that is cool. And I think many of the fintechers have not experienced that because there's not that many fintechs with 5,000 employees, 1,000 employees. Probably it's less than 20 in the world. So it's a very unique place to be. That's super cool. Building on that, was there, I think, many fintechs, we focus on delivering, 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 delivering the first few years because we're building functionality. And at some point, we need to do a change of mindset when it comes to, well, now you've got the debit card. Now you've got the credit card. How do you, that, like in Brazil, like how do you make that card to reach millions of customers, right? Rather than just build another, you cannot build another credit card. Like, well, you can, but it's incremental value. Was there a shift in mindset? So I can speak of, like, I had the, I had the two experiences, like, in, in one company, I built, like, the zero, a zero to one with, with my team. And, and that other company I joined when the card was already hitting millions of customers. The way, the way I thought about it was, and I really like, like, Airbnb's models are on permission to build is that do you have a product that is already satisfying customer needs and is enough, right? Before you can actually jump into building another product, another card, or an extra. If we take, like, Nuvang was just a credit card for five years or four years since inception, right? Mm -hmm. And debit card came as a result of, like, reducing funding needs right? And accelerating growth, right? At some point, yeah. you cannot give credit to everyone, but you could get de debit, right? Yeah. And, and that was the one thing that, that really made the hockey stick in, in growth, right? But what I would say is you don't necessarily need to jump from one product to another. If the one product you have is working well, it's attracting new customers, it get, it's gaining traction, you got retention, you got engagement, then maybe you should focus on the core, build the key functionalities that customers want and, and the ones that act will actually help your business grow, right? Mm -hmm. Because think about like building what customers want is that many customers do not know what they want, right? And they need Correct. to build that intuition, right? And then you can jump into new products, right? But again, until 20, no bank only had credit card, debit card, checking account. And then... 2019, they introduced a beta for lending. 2020, they launched insurance. 2020, they launched Mexico. So, so you can do very well in a big enough market with just one product or, or just a couple products if you serve your customers better than your competitors 
and you actually understand what you need to build around them, right? What I see a lot of fintechs trying to do is going or chasing behind the table stakes all the time. This competitor has launched this new feature. This competitor has launched this other feature. Yeah. Uh, we're way behind. Uh, we need to have whatever. In B2B fintech, we need to have like 10, 15 ERPs, APIs for customers. You actually don't need to have 15 ERPs, right? Maybe you just need a better analytics tool where an accountant can download and make a super easy cash flow analysis with the data that you can provide them. And that's good enough. And then eventually you can build one ERP API, two, three, four, based mm -hmm. on what your customers want or need eventually, right? Yeah. I really like that because then it's like going back to the basics. And this reminds me my times when I was not in fintech, but in banking and in Barclays. This was like so basic. It was like the core. We would talk about the core all the time and being good at the core. And probably that's what... I think you're right. Like many fintechs are like, oh, so-and-so just launched and it's so fast and everybody needs to launch everything. It's like, wait, let's step back a little yeah, bit. A great example for me in, in the cards space is Google Pay, Apple Pay, right? Like, yes, in some countries like Brazil is like table stakes and, and depending on the income level, like it's, it's almost yeah. mandatory, right? But actually, if you're so, if you're serving middle, you don't really need to prioritize on shipping Apple Pay, right? Or because they don't even have iPhones, right? Or, or, or exactly. Google Pay, right? You should prioritize on getting and investing on great data sources for your great risk model, right? Because you will have less information on those people. Yeah. So you can increase your credit lines so you can serve them better, right? And yeah. there's where you should put the money, right? Because Apple Pay takes four to five months if you do it right and if you do it fast. Or you can go through a banking as a service provider, but even so, it will take you two to three months. A couple of backend engineers, we're speaking about anywhere around $40,000, which, you know, like SGNA salaries, some licenses from your flag. Would you? And takes time. Takes time, and maybe it's not. It's more a nice to have than a must have, right? Yeah. But because somebody else has it, then you you're go. Like, oh, we need to catch up. Catch up. Let's stop. You know, and, and you're giving like $50 credit lines and customers are complaining about that and you're working on Apple Pay. So, yeah. yeah. So it's like, guys, let's step back a little bit and think before we put everything in the roadmap. <laughs> Basically, yeah. that's the key takeaway. So one of the very interesting things about your career is that you've worked in fintech, B2C and B2B, both, and it both in very successful fintechs as such. What are your insights on how are we doing product different in B2C and B2B or just like fintechs, how are they different as such? So I've been a month or so in B2B. I just joined Clara as a product director. And I think the main difference I have seen around the ways of working in B2C against B2B is that number one, in B2C, 
you don't have a sales team, right? And you don't have a post-sales team. So you need yeah. to do secondary research on the sales team, right? And understand like what are customers thinking about doing interviews, sending surveys, and collecting data from prospects or, or non-customers, right? And then doing interviews on your current customers to know what they need. In B2B, but, 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 but the trade-off on the good end on B2C is that you do have a huge sample size, right? Like there's millions of people that you could target, interview, and do a potential pitch, right? In B2B, I think the biggest struggle is to collect feedback and build that customer intuition on, on what the customer needs, right? To help purchase the roadmap. So I think number one, sources of truth and how you collect feedback, right? B2C, survey, you do quantitative, qualitative research. In B2B, you actually interview your current customers. And then what you need is really strong CRMs where you can collect feedback on the sales funnel, right? Mm. I really understand people that are not closing a deal with you. Why are they rejecting you? Who are they using? Why are they choosing them over you? Instead of you. And what is lacking within your product, within your value position? Post-sales, what are your current customers complaining about? What can you do better to serve them? And then in between, you cannot fall in love with either your current customers or your prospects. Because if you only focus on your current customers, right, then take an example of Brazil. You will have 100,000 employees, employers, right, or that could be your target segment, right? You're mm -hmm. aiming at SMEs, right? So SMEs, let's say you got 70,000 SMEs around Brazil. I'm shooting a number, right? And you're a startup and you're just starting in Brazil. So you hit 500 customers. Is that sample representative of the whole market? So if you only build for those 500, maybe you're missing the whole the rest. bell, right? Yeah. Also, if you only focus on the people that are rejecting you, then you're not serving well your current customers, right? So you need to balance that. That I, I think the, the second biggest difference is prioritization, right? So in B2C, we have many books and playbooks on how to prioritize, right? You have the impact versus effort. You have the rise. You, you, you can do it in any framework way that you want, yes. That you want. And you will have enough data to actually size, measure, uh, and actually define if it's a, a good way, right? To, to put it up or down, and, and you can have your, your, your strong data sources or intuition. But I think it's, it's a bit easier to prioritize. In B2B and in B2B regional uh, companies, you have different things that are competed with each other, right? So... And different variables you need to take into account. Besides impact network, what you need to think about is, okay, so what customer asks for this feature, right? Because features come directly from the customers, from your sales team that, that, are, that are serving them, right? Yeah. Okay. Or they come from prospects that have rejected your offer and they have stated that the reason they rejected was this. So the, the first one, strategic, account tells your salesperson that they want this feature. 
So you tell the product manager owning that journey of the value proposition, like, hey, we need to build this. So that, how does that compete with the rest of the backlog? So now you need to think, okay, is a customer that made the request a strategic account, for example? And that's one way mm-hmm. of operatization, right? There are many, but so number one, is it a strategic account? Is it a high potential account? Or is it a, a startup or a low potential account that will actually, we will serve them, but they are not actually generating additional profit or revenue to us. They are like breaking even and they're just compensating for our cost to serve them, right? Yeah. But we're happy to serve them, but I don't know if we would build something specifically for them. Right? And that could be one way of looking at it. Right? Mm-hmm. The second factor is, of course, like you need to size the engineering, engineering effort of it. But an impact is, is it strategic? So if I do this change, will they increase their usage? Will they be more eager to, to use us? Will they, will they be prompt to actually purchase like a SaaS subscription if we develop this new feature, right? Yeah. And then the other important thing in, in B2B is, will the feature I am building impact all the rest of the customers or a big majority of them and benefit my whole population? Or will it be something super specific for this customer, for this specific industry that will have no impact on the rest of the customers? Right? And then you have the, the regional if the B2B fintech is regional, where I may building something that is country specific, or will this be also helpful for other geographies, right? Yeah. And these trade-offs are usually more on the ops and onboarding side, and sometimes some payment methods or ERPs than on analytics experience, UX, UI, dashboards, etc. Changes. Right? It's like a different type of conversation altogether. Exactly. So sources of truth on what customers need, how do you prioritize what customers need, and then stakeholders' involvement in product decisions differs, right? Depending on the company, what I would feel is that in B2C, product may have most of the power in decision-making, whereas in B2B, it's a hands-on collaboration decision-making with a lot of trade-offs, right? Because you have the sales team, you have the finance team, you have the product team, and you need to merge the three to actually provide something that satisfies your key accounts, delivers value to the customers in a way that sequencing engineering wise product team wise makes sense and also impacts the business in a sustainable way right because in b2b the thing is that any investment you make it it usually takes time for you or or a little bit longer to see the results and actually see the impact on your pnl right yeah Uh, whereas in b2b like you launch something immediately wow a thousand customers ten thousand customers so exciting, people are using it, etc. right? And in B2B, the return investment can, can get lower, right? Yeah. You know, is... The return investment could be, could be higher, sorry, but, but the time to see the investment could be slower. Yes. This is so interesting. I could keep talking with you for two hours, <laughs> but I'm very conscious of time. So as a product director, 
you work with a lot of PMs. How do you keep your people happy and high performance and motivated? That is key for a fintech and a successful team overall. Yeah, that's a good one. So what what I would say is what makes a PM frustrated? Number one, feeling they cannot deliver at the pace he would like to. I cannot speak for all PMs, but at least many of the PMs I have worked with have high standards for themselves and they don't like to fail. They have a high bar. They're mostly overachievers or or they really want to make it right. The other feel, the other thing that makes them frustrated is a lack of clarity ambition on what do they need to build. They usually dislike when you go back on decisions and they made the team work on things that are not going to be shipped mm. or, 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 and they have to face the uh, retaliation of the engineering team, design yes. team that work on something for months. And then someone and above then never told launched. them. Yes. Exactly. And the other thing that frustrates a PM a ton with lack of clarity on career path, right? Where am I going? Uh, how am I growing? If you join a fintech, especially a startup, series A, B, C, whatever, you're looking at the upside. You're not looking at the salary beyond paying your bills, but you're looking at the equity, the upside. How can I grow? How can I make something? How can I build impact, build my portfolio and actually get something better eventually, right? Or, or grow with the company. So if you understand the pain points and what gets a PM frustrated, then the way the way I actually tackle it is number one on delivery. So that, and that's the beauty of banking and consulting. What I would do is workload management, best practices from consulting and bank, right? So any PM that works with me, I would help them with their backlog management. So every Monday, they would tell me what are their key priorities for the week on a Slack message or, or asynchronous, right? Then I would align those priorities. And then on our one-on-one that Monday, we would not spend time on what you're working on, what are, what are your priorities. It will be only on how can it be helpful to you? Are there any blockers? Do you see anything that could stop you from hitting your weekly priorities this week, right? Yeah. And then by doing that and, and telling them like organize your agenda on Sundays, schedule the meetings, you help them build that muscle on you need to be the owner of your own workload and backlog, right? As, as you prioritize the product backlog, you need to have your own personal backlog. And then they start hitting the key priorities and objectives and they get less anxious because they know what to focus on in which order, right? And as a leader, you can help them on that. On clarity ambition, I would share to them the strategy that I ambition that I received from above, right? So things that they don't necessarily need to share to the team and because it could derail the focus, but I could tell them, okay, so we're building this product. I think that the potential flywheels could be, I don't know, well, building a technics account, potential flywheels could be a debit card, or we could even use customer's deposit to collateralize them and put them as a guarantee as a guarantee to extend the credit line cards. Uh, but that's something that we need to work forward for now. I think the most important things for us to focus on delivering 
a wallet where you can deposit money, etc. And they can also share that vision with their teams if they believe it's worth it or not. But they at least have clarity on what's the idea, what's the goal, why yep. are we building this, right? Career path. I'm a big promoter on monthly feedback sessions. So I push them to set up feedback sessions with their engineering pair, their design pair. And if there's any business analytics pair, like just have that one-on-one. And I myself set up one-on-ones with them so they can give me feedback on how I am. Am I doing as a leader, right? So setting the example works a ton on, on promoting feedback loops. And then career pathwise, on those monthly one-on-ones, when I provide feedback to them, I also tell them, like, how do you feel about your career? Like, this is the career ladder. And every time I onboard a new PM, when I hire, I, I show them, like, this is the PM career ladder, this is career path, this is what you need to, to hit. And on every performance cycle, what I would do is, so this is how you did over the last semester or whatever cycle length was. This is where you're at. This is the next level. Let's do an action plan and, and just tell me, and just tell me what, what you're going to build, right? What are you going to build to hit those things that could help you get to the next level, right? So, so that's, and then the other thing is invest in upskilling your PMs. It's easier, way easier than to hire someone from another company with other, product school learnings, etc. Mm-hmm. So right now I join I join Clada, I have two APMs. I asked him, do you want to join a, a PM course? And there's like this amazing Brazilian PM at school at tech called PM3, uh, whose founder Marcel Almeida worked in Nubank with me at the time. I hit Marcel, I told him, do you want to go to the best product school in Brazil? Yes. They, they both wanted to go, both associate PMs, and they're both going to that course, right? And they were super excited about it. So I think that's how you can get a PM motivated with clarity on the product vision, clarity on career path. You're upskilling them. Um, you're helping them with their, with their workload management, and you're making sure that they're focusing on what matters the most, right? It's really hard for them to fail if you set that, those boundaries for them, right? If they yeah. do fail after setting those boundaries, maybe it was not the right job, it was a bad moment for them, but at least you set the, the right court rates, right? And they yeah. will be forever, forever grateful. Of course, of course. I think this has been one of the best conversations I've had in my 70 episodes or something. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm just listening so carefully. Thank you so much, Edus. As Thank we you. reach towards the end, properly, the last, last question, other than where can we find you? That's the very last one. If you were to change one thing in fintech, just one thing to make fintech better for customers, staff, and shareholders, what would that be? Wow. It's a tough one. I think the one thing I would change is having fintech companies and financial institutions partner with governments to promote financial lives and financial education within schools since from the beginning when people are kids right and and having like 
money management, wealth management, spending, having good health, financial habits being part of the education curricula. And I don't think that's only the government's role to do. I think core institutions, fintechs, neobanks, they are the ones that provide those financial products and services to the customers when they are 12 years old, 18, when they get their first job. And they should be also be responsible and accountable and pushing for that change, right? I think yeah. as, as product managers, we always complain that one of the big pain points is that people don't understand the products. People don't know how to use a credit card. So do something about it, right? Education. Well, I have an education blog in my website. Nobody is going to read it. People don't have time. I didn't really care. They don't care. But, okay. yeah. Hello? I think yes. I... I, I yes. know. Yeah. But But if you actually promote it from school and make it mandatory and they need to get a grade on that to actually get to the next pass grade the and, test. and pass the test, then everybody would get out of school at 12 or 18, depending on the opportunities they have in, in their lives, with some level of financial education knowledge, right? And I think that could really change customers' the future lives. Of that. And I'm like, that can change the future of humanity as such. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's been such an amazing conversation. I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to cut this into small videos and be like, this is the most interesting bit. I'm like, you have to listen to it all, <laughs> not just that minute. <laughs> Where can we find you and your newsletter? So you can find me on Twitter in Edu Moore. Edu from Eduardo, so Edu Moore blog. You can find me on LinkedIn. I post content on a weekly basis and I have a newsletter on LinkedIn and I'm hopefully building a Substack soon. So just follow me on LinkedIn, Eduardo Moore, and see you around. Yes, and all the details will be in the show notes so can easily find him. Thank you, everyone. And Edu, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all that wisdom. Thank you, Monica. This was so much fun. Yes, it was. Bye. Thank you. Thank bye you. bye.